Open your Bibles, if you would now, to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And today I want to preach part number two of the message that I began last week, entitled, Analyzing the Gospel. In the beginning of this chapter, chapter 15, Paul gives us a definition of the gospel. Uh, Gospel is a word that simply means the good news. And the good news that everybody needs to hear is defined by Paul to be this, that Jesus Christ died for our sins, that he was put into a grave, and then on the third day, Jesus arose from that grave. And so Paul begins chapter 15 with the gospel. He gives us the three necessary parts of it, but his intent really is to focus on the last part. He's going to develop throughout the rest of the chapter the fact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And what he's laboring to prove as he goes through this chapter is because Christ arose from the dead, then those who believe in him also will arise from the dead. The people in the church at Corinth had different opinions about things. They didn't really understand this very well. They wondered, what happens to the body after you die? Does your body decay? Does it, does it just pass out of existence? And if there is really a resurrection from the dead, is that a spiritual resurrection or is it a bodily resurrection? So they didn't really understand this thing about life after death. And so this 15th chapter is written to address a third misunderstanding that we find in the Corinthian church. And it's a misunderstanding about immortality. Last week we talked about three different ideas that were popular in Greek culture about the afterlife during the time of Paul. And so these ideas made it very confusing to to them when Paul started talking about a bodily resurrection. And if you remember, the first thing that we talked about was hedonism. And hedonism basically says that this life is all there is. There is no life after death. And so what you need to do, you need to live it up right now because there's nothing for you to look forward to afterwards. The second idea was that of pantheism. And pantheism essentially says that everything material is God, and so that when you die, your body decays, it passes into nothingness, and then you're just absorbed into the universe. And that's the idea of many New Age people today. The third idea that Paul talked about was, or that that we know about that time, was Platonism. And Platonism said that the spirit lives, but the body's going to decay. The body ends, but the spirit will last forever. Well, all three of those ideas are wrong. And Paul is going to show us in 1 Corinthians 15 that because Jesus arose bodily from the dead, we also will rise. So that's the theme that Paul is going to develop. But before he does that, he talks about the gospel. And the gospel is sort of the launching pad to get him into that discussion about the resurrection. Now today we're going to go into the second part of the message entitled Analyzing the Gospel. So we're going to begin reading today in 1 Corinthians 15 verse number 1. If you'd stand with me please as we read God's Word. And if you uh, have a Bible that you can share with someone who doesn't have one, uh, please do that so we can all read the Scriptures together. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 beginning at verse number 1. He says, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. And then verses 3 and 4, he gives us this explanation of the gospel. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. 
Verse number five, he starts going into proofs of the resurrection. And that he was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve. After that, he was seen above five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain under the present, but some are fallen asleep. After that, he was seen of James, then of all the apostles. And last of all, he was seen of me also as one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles, then am not meet. And that word means fit. I'm not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace, which was bestowed upon me, was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. Therefore, whether it were I or they, or in other words, whether it was me preaching this or whether it was the apostles or others, so we preach and so ye believed. Heavenly Fathers, we come to you today. We are discussing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as Paul says in these first verses, this is the way that we're saved. Lord, we just pray that you might open someone's eyes to this gospel today. We pray that someone might even be saved among this congregation in this very hour. And then, Lord, that others will be drawn closer to you and that we would become witnesses of the gospel of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I'd like to take just a few minutes to review some of the information that we talked about last week. The purpose is to analyze the gospel. And we first started talking about how the gospel reaches people. God has a method by which you receive the gospel of Christ. And that is by the preaching of the gospel. The gospel has to be proclaimed. Somebody has to tell it. And the gospel is a proclamation. God calls men into the ministry of preaching, and it's the job of the minister to stand before the people and to declare to them the very same thing that Paul says in the first part of this chapter, the gospel of Jesus Christ. How that Christ died for our sins, how he was buried, and how he rose again. And so the chief job that I have as the pastor of Berean Baptist Church is to come to hear you each week and to tell you about this message of Jesus Christ. Now, obviously, many times when I get up to preach, my whole sermon is not concerned with those three elements of the gospel, but certainly this ought to be true. Every time that you come into Berean Baptist Church, what is said here will somehow tie back into this wonderful thing that Jesus came into the world to die for our sins and that he arose from the grave victoriously so that we can live forever. Now, what I'm doing today is what we call formal preaching. This is when I stand in a pulpit and I, I, I open a certain passage of Scripture. I begin to expound to you God's Word. I'm doing formal preaching right now. But that's not the only way that God says we're to get this gospel out. It's not just by formal preaching. It's also by informal. And that's when you as a Christian... You who, is a, who are a believer in Jesus Christ, that you go and you take this very same message, the message that you believe, the message that you were saved by, and you go and you tell someone else that if they will believe that Jesus died for their sins, Jesus took the full penalty of their sins upon himself, and if you tell them that he died, he was buried, and he rose again, then you are also preaching, you are proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what we call evangelism. Evangelism, preaching, gospel, it all comes from the very same root word. And this is we are to tell the message of Jesus Christ. So I want to encourage every one of you here today, if you are a believer, you also ought to be a preacher of the gospel. 
Most of you won't have the opportunity to come up here and stand behind this place and, and deliver a sermon. And many of you probably wouldn't want to do that. But you can be a messenger. You can be a preacher of the gospel to others who need to hear the message. Well, there are two things that we talked about that were necessary for the gospel uh, to actually become effective in a person's life. And that is that it must be received, and then secondly, that it must be believed. A person has to hear the message, and that should be obvious to, it, uh, to us. They need to hear in order that they can believe this. And then when they place their personal faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, when that is expressed, that's when they can be saved. There's only one time in the Scripture where a point-blank question was asked in this way, what, what must I do to be saved? And the answer by a preacher of the gospel was, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. So the question was asked, and the question answered. But that gospel that we preach is never going to be effective in a person's life unless he believes. Otherwise, what I'm telling you today... Nothing more than a bedtime story. Just a fable that I tell you. It has to be believed in order for a person to be changed by it. And this is not just a bedtime story, folks. Not something you could just pass off and say, Oh, well, the preacher preached the old, same old thing again today. Just the story that he always tells. Well, this is the story by which you can be saved. And it's God's way and the only way that the Bible says that you can have eternal life. So that's what we discovered first about the gospel. This gospel must be preached, it must be received, and it must be believed. Secondly, we talked about this, the parts of the gospel. I'm not going to go into detail today about the parts of the gospel. Uh, That was in last week's message. You you can hear it on the church website. You can get a CD of last week if you want to hear it. So very briefly, we're just going to describe it. Three parts of the gospel are found in verses 3 and verse verse 4. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. So the three parts of the gospel are Christ's death, his burial, and his resurrection. And all of the parts of the gospel are essential. Christ must die for our sins. And that means that he must become our substitute. He must die in our place. And what Jesus did was to take the penalty of our sins, the the punishment that we would have to take should we not believe in him. And so every person, because of God's justice, the Bible teaches that we are condemned to death and hell. But because Jesus came to take away our sins, anyone who trusts in him can be, can be a saved person. You just have to trust him as the Savior. The second part of the gospel was the burial. Jesus was buried, and we told you last week that that symbolized what Jesus did with our sins. He took our sins into his grave, and he buried them. And he buried them so deep that they'll never be dredged up ever again. But Jesus also had to be buried because of the proof of his death. You don't bury people that aren't dead... And so they buried Jesus. Uh, they, they, they showed that he really was truly dead. So there was no question about it. They took that body down from the cross. They washed it. They anointed it with burial spices. They wrapped it in the grave clothes. And they laid it in that tomb. There was no doubt whatsoever that Jesus was really dead. But then there's that third part. And this is the part that Paul really wants us to get. This is the focus in this 15th chapter, and that is there was a bodily resurrection of Christ. In power and glory, Jesus came out 
of that tomb. And he did that for two very specific reasons, because there are things that we need to learn from this resurrection. The first one is that when Christ arose from the grave, that was God's stamp of approval on what Jesus did. It was God saying, I will accept this death of my son. I will accept that as a full payment and the full punishment for sins of anyone who will trust in him. That was number one. That's the one number one reason. But the second reason that Jesus was brought out of that grave was to show us something. And that is that when we die, believing in Jesus Christ, that we also will be raised. Just as Jesus came out of the tomb with a body, with a body that went in, we are also going to be raised victorious from that grave. If you're a Christian, that's going to happen to you. So the resurrection of Jesus actually becomes the strength of our salvation. Without the resurrection of Christ, everything in Christianity fails. Jesus must do exactly what he said that he would do. Christ, if he was not raised from the dead, then the founder of Christianity fails. Our faith fails. Our future is no good. All of that is lost unless Jesus died, was buried, and arose, came back to life. So, that's really the heart and soul of Christianity. Christianity is about Christ. And unless he does everything in perfect detail, as it was said of him, he cannot be the Christ, he cannot be our Lord, and he is not our God. So Jesus must do everything that the Bible says that he would do. And so that's why Paul emphasized in verses 3 and 4 that all of these things that Jesus did in that death, burial, and resurrection, that was prophesied by the Scriptures. And Jesus fulfilled it all perfectly. Well, now we want to move on. We want to go on to verses 5 through 11. The preaching of the gospel, that's part of the analysis. The uh, parts of the gospel, those are essential. You must believe them. But then there's a third area in this analysis that's also very important, and that is the proofs of the gospel. Now, I want you to look at verse number 5 again, because here's where Paul says, this is how we know that Jesus arose from the dead. Now, remember that Paul is writing this letter about 22 to 26 years after Jesus died. So there weren't any of the Corinthians who had actually seen the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. They didn't didn't, uh, themselves witness that. And so Paul then begins to point out there is a reality to this because there are people who actually witnessed that Jesus was alive in his body after he died. So God wasn't going to leave this up to mere speculation, and he wasn't going to ask us to accept the fact of Jesus' resurrection just as a matter of faith. Now, that would be all right for God to do that, because everything that God says, you certainly ought to believe it, whether there's an an independent witness to verify what he says or not. We believe everything that God says. But in this particular case, we have one of the greatest blessings of Christianity because God understands the skepticism of men. And so rather than to leave it just to a matter of faith, he gave us abundant proof that Jesus arose from the dead. Now certainly God could say, you either believe this or I'm going to fry you like a bug zapper. He could do that if he wanted to. But instead, he gave us the proof. So Christianity is not just an intellectual faith, and certainly it is that. It's also an objective faith. As we look through the Bible, we find that, that God testified many times as to the reality of his person and his presence. 
you go back in the Old Testament and you look at, look at the children of Israel, they saw all of those plagues that came upon Egypt. They witnessed the fact that the Red Sea was parted and they walked across on dry ground. They got into the wilderness and they actually saw the manna that God sent and what covered the earth. They actually saw water that came out of a rock when Moses struck that rock. And so the children of Israel were witnesses to many miracles that God did. And then when we come to the New Testament, along comes Jesus Christ, and what does he do? He does miracles. In the book of John, John recorded seven very special miracles out of all the many miracles that Christ did. And John told us, the reason that I wrote these things down is so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ. You may remember when we studied the Gospel of John, I told you then that John's gospel is the only one that states categorically exactly why it was written. We find it in John 20, verses 20 and 20 through 31. Uh, And many, John 20, 30 and 31. And many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written, that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life in his name. So God will give us the proof. God tells us exactly who he is and what he's done. And he gives proof that he raised Jesus from the dead. So he's not going to leave us without the proof. In fact, Luke wrote in the book of Acts, he said, he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. So when we get to verse number 5, In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, here's how we know it was all real. Here's how we know Jesus arose from the grave. Now, let's look at some of the proofs that he gives. First of all, he gives us some private appearances of Jesus. If you'll look in verse 5, he says, and that he was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve. Cephas, of course, is Peter. After Jesus arose from the dead, there was a special appearance that Jesus made to Peter. That was a, that was a private appearance. You may remember that, that Peter was the one who said, Lord, though all the other disciples will forsake you, I will never forsake you. And it wasn't just a few minutes after Peter said that, that Peter denied Jesus not one time, but denied him three times. I think it's very significant that Jesus appeared specifically to Peter because I think that that was telling Peter that that I've forgiven you, I'm standing by you, you're my child, I'll love you no matter what. And Jesus' love and his compassion for Peter was shown in that he appeared to Peter. And I think that's one of the reasons why Paul points it out. Peter was faithless at one time. But then he saw the resurrected Lord and that encouraged Peter in his faith And what Peter was willing to do, he was ready to go to the death for his Savior in reality because he saw the resurrected Christ. So Peter was so bold that he preached the message of the Lord. He never renounced his faith. And tradition tells us that when it was time for him to be killed or to be martyred for the cause of Jesus Christ, he asked to be crucified upside down. Nobody does that. Nobody does that unless something so radical has happened to them. Something, they've seen something that's unlike anything anybody else has ever seen. And what would that be? It was the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He saw him in that resurrected body. Then Paul goes on and he talks about some other private appearances. He says that Jesus was seen of the twelve. 
And then in verse number 7, he says that James saw him also on an individual basis. And then he appeared to all of the disciples together on several different occasions. Now, that's kind of an interesting thing that Paul says here. Because when Jesus appeared to the disciples, when he appeared to these apostles, all 12 of them actually weren't there. Judas had already gone and hanged himself. I mean, out of self-pity, Judas hanged himself. But there was also another disciple that wasn't there. Who, who was that? Thomas, exactly right. Thomas wasn't there. Now, Thomas, as you all know, is the one we call Doubting Thomas, which is quite an unfair description of him for reasons I don't have time to go into now. But Thomas wasn't there. On that Sunday night when Jesus appeared to the disciples, he wasn't there. And so that's why I've told you before, you need to be sure you're in church on Sunday night. You don't know what's going to happen or who might show up. So you better come to church on Sunday nights. So the 12 aren't all there. So why does Paul say he appeared to the 12? Is that a mistake in Scripture? Actually, it's not. Because when he says the 12, he's referring to the group. Whenever the disciples were identified as a group, they were often called the 12. It's just like when I say, well, the the church met together last night. Well, you'd understand that I mean by that, that the members of Brian Baptist Church met together last night. But you would not assume that every single member of the church was here because you weren't here last night, were you? So you wouldn't think that. Well, it's the same thing that we have here. I don't know when all the members of the church actually got together at one time anyway. So when he uses the 12, he's talking about the group. So the proof that Jesus arose from the dead comes from the testimony of Peter. It comes from James and from the apostles. And they all went to their deaths steadfastly maintaining that the resurrection was true. Every single one of them was martyred except the apostle John. And they all believed it because they saw Jesus in that resurrected body. But I want to, before I move on, I, I just want to talk to you for a little bit here about the Apostle James. The James that we're reading about here, most people believe that this was the half-brother of Jesus. Uh, James wrote the book of James that we have in the New Testament. But the interesting thing about him, being in Jesus' family, when Jesus was very young and when Jesus began his public ministry at the age of 30, none of his brothers and sisters believed in him. None of them actually believed that he was the Messiah. And so as Jesus went through his public ministry, he had that burden, you might say, on his own back as his own family didn't believe in him. But James later became a disciple of Jesus. He trusted him, and he became a very strong disciple and actually became the leader of the Jerusalem church. Now, the, the Bible doesn't actually tell us that, that Jesus made a personal appearance to the apostle John. So why does... Paul say such a thing? Well, we may actually have a clue to this in Galatians chapter 1. There it says, But other of the apostles, and this is Paul speaking, But other of the apostles saw I none, save James, the Lord's brother. And what Paul means is that there was a trip that he made to Jerusalem, and he's describing this. And on this particular trip, he didn't meet with anybody but one of the apostles, and that was James. He just met with him. He was the leader of the church, and he didn't talk to anybody else during that, during that uh, uh, trip that he made. Well, it's likely 
that what Paul did when he first met James was to tell him how he had met Jesus on the road to Damascus, to give him that experience of how Jesus had appeared to him personally. And so it's very likely that what James did was to sort of swap experiences with Paul and say, oh, you saw him in the resurrected body? So did I. And then he begins to tell him how that Jesus had appeared to him. So that might be why Paul mentions it here in 1 Corinthians 15. So even though it's not recorded in another place, Paul says this is true. There were many private appearances that proved the resurrection. But he goes on from there, and he also says that there are public appearances of Jesus. Verse number 6 says that there were over 500 people at one time that saw Jesus in the resurrected body. Most people believe that this was a, a time that happened in Galilee, that Jesus appeared to the people there. But Paul's point here is that if anybody doubts that Jesus really arose from the grave, there are plenty of living witnesses who, who can testify. They saw it. They know it's a fact. Now, he does say that some of them have fallen asleep. I mean, some of them have already died. But he says most of them or many of them, they're still alive. And if Paul didn't know that he could call those witnesses, he never would have offered this proof. And so he says there's all these people out there that actually did see Jesus in the resurrected body. 500 people all don't have the same hallucination at one time. So they really did see Jesus risen from the dead. You know, that's something that other religions never attempt to do. Do you know of any other religion that tries to prove that their founder is alive? They know better, don't they? They know better because they can go to a place where there is a grave marker and they know that the bones of that person is in that grave. But nobody has ever dug up the bones of Jesus Christ. And nobody ever will because Jesus is not in a tomb. Jesus arose bodily from the grave. And there are plenty of witnesses to the resurrection. But then Paul goes on and he gives more. And this is the best proof. He saves the best proof until last. And I say it's the best proof because this was a personal appearance. Paul says, I also saw him. Who could better testify than Paul and say, I also saw him? In Acts chapter 9, we have the recording of Paul's conversion. I hope that you remember that story. But Paul was on his way to Damascus. He'd received letters from the chief priest in Jerusalem to go to Damascus. And there he was to capture Christians. He was to bind them and bring them back to Jerusalem for trial. Many of those people, I'm sure, that when he'd done this before, they had been killed because of their belief in Christ. But on this particular journey, when Paul was on the way to Damascus, there was a great light that shone around him. And that light was the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Jesus appeared to Paul, and he saved him. And he saved him by the very same gospel that Paul right now is preaching in this book of 1 Corinthians. So Paul says, I saw him. In verse number 8, and last of all, he was seen of me also as one born out of due time. That's actually a very self-deprecating statement when Paul says this. And Paul often did this. He, He recognized who he was and so... Uh, Whenever he talks about his salvation, he gets very self-deprecating. I mean, he just talks himself down. And he considered himself to be the very worst of the worst. And the reason he did was because he said, I persecuted Christians. I put people to death before Jesus saved me. He says here, I was born as one out of due time. And that's actually an expression of shame. And what it means 
It's the very same word from which we get the word abortion today. It's the very same word. It's just like a fetus that comes forth in an untimely birth. And so what Paul is saying, I am inferior. Uh, to, to, compared to the rest of the apostles, he says, I'm like an abortive fetus. I haven't been perfectly formed. I haven't grown to my proper size of stature compared to the other apostles. And so he says in verse number 9, For I am least of the apostles that have not meet. I am not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. And so before he had persecuted Christians, he knew by, by that that he could be saved only by God's marvelous grace. Only by that his heart and his life were changed. And so God had given him the greatest of all gifts. He saved his unworthy soul. Then he made him a preacher of the gospel of Christ. Paul was never less than always amazed by the gospel of the Lord that he preached. Now that leads me to our last observation, the last of our analysis of the gospel. Number four is the products of the gospel. What does the gospel produce? What happens? What happens to you when you believe the gospel of Jesus Christ? Well, the first thing that happens is the gospel produces life. Let me read to you from 2 Timothy. These are some great verses. You can look this up later in your Bible and underline it. But you might write a pencil uh, uh, right next to 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4. This reference, 2 Timothy 1, verses 8 through 10. Just listen as I read. Be not thou for, therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. But be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God. Listen to verse 9. Who hath saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works. Nothing that we could do. Not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given in Christ Jesus before the world began. And listen to verse 10. But is now made manifest by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who hath abolished death and hath brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. You know what verse number 10 is? That is an affirmation of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's a reference to that. So Jesus, by his resurrection, brought life and immortality to light. In other words, by that resurrection, he showed us that we would be raised also, that we would also be brought into life. And isn't that exactly what the Corinthians had trouble with? They didn't understand the whole issue of immortality. But he says the gospel of Jesus Christ brings to light life and immortality. And friend, that's exactly what the gospel does for you. When you trust him as your Savior, it produces life in you. Now, right now, the Bible says that if you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, that you are dead. You might want to pinch yourself to be sure. Maybe you don't believe it, but the Bible says you are dead. And the purpose of the gospel is to bring you out of that spiritual death that you're in so that you might become alive unto Jesus Christ. The Bible says you are dead in trespasses and sin. But the gospel of Jesus Christ changes that because it raise you, raises you from spiritual death into spiritual life. Now, here's what will happen. Unless you believe in Jesus Christ, you will physically die, as all will. But when you physically die without him, then you will go physically and spiritually into the fires of hell. Now, most people won't tell you about that. 
Most churches that you go to today, they won't talk to you about hell. They don't want to preach about that. They say, well, that's just too negative. But hell is a real place. Hell is a literal burning fire. And I will warn you today, you do not want to go there. And, and the plain facts of the gospel are this. You don't have to go there because Jesus has brought to light life and immortality through the gospel. So you don't have to go to hell. You can believe in Jesus Christ. Christ promises life, immortality. That's a product of the gospel. Then the second thing that the gospel produces is lowliness. And I mean by this that the gospel will humble you. You remember when Paul was saved? He was called Saul at that time. And if there was anybody who could pull out the pedigree and say, well, if there's a good person, I'm it. He said, if you, if you want to look at somebody who's done everything in their life right as well as they could do it, he said, I'm the person that you can look to. He says, I have the pedigree. In the book of Philippians, he said, I am the consummate Hebrew. He said, I kept the law. I practiced the law. Nobody can touch me for dedication and zeal to my religion. But then you know what he said after that? He said, all of that is nothing. Everything good that I thought that I was doing, every time that I tried to be what God wanted me to be, it was absolutely nothing. And he added a superlative to nothing. He said, it is nothing or it is all. I count it all as dung. I'd say that's pretty humble, wouldn't you? That's a pretty humbling thing to say. And yet that's what Paul said about himself. And that's what the gospel does for you. It tells you who you are and who God is. And when the gospel is through with you, you come to the conclusion, I am nothing and Christ is everything. And so I must depend upon him. And so for Paul, it caused him to say, he looked back at his life and he says, of all sinners that have ever lived, I am the very worst. In our text verses here, it caused him to say, I am the least of the apostles. Well, look at Paul's life. He says, I am the least of the apostles. Here's the apostle Paul who wrote most of the New Testament. Here's Paul, who uh, in the book of Acts is concerned almost uh, uh, after you get past chapter 9, the book is about Paul. It's all about his experiences. Peter said about him, he is an amazing theologian. He's a theological giant. What he wrote in the, in, the, in the New Testament books are the zenith of doctrinal truths. Peter said he's a theological giant. He said so many things he writes in his letters are hard for you to understand. And yet Paul says, I am the very least. That's what the gospel does. It takes away pride. The true nature of the gospel of Christ is that it is a gospel of grace. And only God's grace can lift you from your self-pride and your selfishness and turn you into a believer in Jesus Christ and one who is humble before him. The gospel produces lowliness. And so he says in verse number 10, Anything that I am, it comes from the grace of God. By the grace of God, I am what I am. Now finally, I want to point out to you that the gospel produces labor. In verse number 10 it says, But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace which was bestowed upon me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Now let me tell you something right now. Don't put your Bibles away. You're going to need them in just a minute. So don't put it up just yet. I labored more abundantly than they all. In America, if you tell people, this will produce labor, 
Most people will run away from it, won't they? They'll get as far away from that as they can get. When you talk to people and you say, well, are you working hard today? And they say, no, hardly working. And they're proud of that. Hardly working. And you drive down the road and you see construction vehicles and on the back there's a bumper sticker, I'd rather be fishing. You know, I thought about that. That, That's sort of a good bumper sticker for Christians, isn't it? I'd rather be fishing. The amazing thing about the gospel is you don't work to receive this. There's nothing that you can do. There's no work that you can do in order to receive this. But here's what I believe, that when you trust Christ as your Savior, when you do believe it, you will go to work. You'll start serving Jesus. The desire of your life will be to go fishing. And what I mean by that is you'll want to tell somebody else about the same gospel that saved you. You'll go fishing for souls. And so what did the gospel do for, uh, for Paul? It made him one of the greatest, if not the greatest missionary and the greatest servant of God of all time. He says, I labored more abundantly than they all. And that wasn't a boast because he followed it up with the grace of God. So every facet of his life was ruled by grace. And that grace came to him through the gospel of Jesus Christ. He was a real worker because the gospel will produce labor. So as we step back to analyze the gospel, we see that it needs to be preached. It needs to be believed in all of its part. That's how it it really changes a person. There are many proofs of it. There are witnesses to the resurrection of Christ, many infallible proofs that are given. And the reality is seen in the person who believes. It produces a change in their life so that they go to work for Jesus Christ. Now here's a question for you. Have you been changed by this gospel? Are you a believer in Jesus Christ? Has something happened in your life that makes you different because you have trusted the gospel of Christ? Well, I want to tell you something. If you are a believer today, then it's time for you to stop analyzing the gospel and it's time for you to start agonizing about it. And what I mean by that is that there are people around us every day that are dying and going to hell. This is the message that your mom needs to hear, your dad needs to hear it, your brothers, your sisters, your friends, your neighbors, your co-workers. They need to hear this message. And the reason they do is because you don't want them to die and go to hell. And that's the place that they're headed without him. So the gospel has to be preached to lost sinners because that's the only way they have the opportunity to believe. Who is going to tell them if we don't? Now, I want you to take your Bibles, if you would, and let's open them up. Everybody, if you would, please. We're going to go to one more reference in Romans chapter 10. Romans was also written by Paul. He has something very important here in chapter 10 to say about the gospel. Now, we're breaking in to another discussion that he has, but I want you to look at verse number 11. Romans chapter 10, verse number 11. For the Scripture saith, Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. Now that verse tells us anybody can be saved. Anybody who believes can be saved. For whosoever, verse 13, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now let's go to verse number 14. We're going to read verses 14 and 15. This time I want you to read these out loud with me. That's why I ask you to open your Bible. I want you to read verses 14 and 15 with me, all right? How shall they then call on him in whom they have not believed? 
How shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, How beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. Folks, the gospel will never do anybody any good if all we do is sit here and analyze it. We have to do something about it. We have to tell people about it. So for your mom, for your dad, for those brothers and sisters, whomever it may be, the only way that they'll ever be saved, the only way that they're going to go to heaven, is if you give them the gospel of Jesus Christ. One of the effects of true belief is labor. It'll cause you to want to tell somebody else. So I want to encourage you. I'm not the only preacher here today. Every one of you who is a believer in Jesus, you are also a preacher. And we need to work together to get this message out that Jesus died, that he was buried, and that he rose again. And if people will believe that, they can be saved and they can go to heaven. Let's do it together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to you today, we thank you for this wonderful gospel of Jesus Christ. By this we are saved. Lord, we just pray that every Christian here today would consider themselves also a preacher of the gospel of Christ. I pray, Lord, that you might lay it upon their heart, even someone this very day that's not saved, that they know it's not saved, and yet they would be willing to go and talk to them about Jesus. Give us those opportunities and fill our mouths with your words. Then, Lord, we pray for any person here today who hasn't trusted Jesus. We just ask you, Lord, to impress upon their hearts the knowledge of what Christ did, not just mere knowledge, but in their own heart and soul, they would very clearly understand Jesus died for their sins. He took all the penalty that they would have to suffer in the fires of hell. And Lord, if they'll just believe it, they can be set free from the bondage of sin and corruption. And when they die, or when Jesus comes again, they'll go home to be with him. Speak to some heart today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.